Hi, everybody. Welcome to my podcast, Tell Me Everything with Susan DeMonte. Having overcome 18 years of almost dying five times from internal bleeding due to Crohn's disease, violent crime, family alcoholism, drug addiction, eating disorders, and tragic death, people are often inspired by my personal story of resilience and overcoming adversity. This podcast is a way to share my stories of winning over myself and encouraging others to do the same. Welcome, I hope you get encouraged and tell me everything. Hi everybody, welcome to Tell Me Everything with Susan DeMonte. We're on episode three with Dorothy Sinclair. We had to do a part two with Dorothy. She has 95 years on all of us. So there's much more I wanted to ask her. Um, thank you for tuning back in. And um, I think uh, let's start with you're married to the doctor. So we also, the last thing we heard was that you had your second husband who you went down the aisle and you knew it was wrong, and yet you still continue to go because you had this voice in your head that your mother's got to be married. Yeah. And uh, so I'd like to go back to, because I know you uh, faced a serious health challenge when you were married to the doctor, correct? Yes, yes. Can you share, share with us? So, and if you could share it in terms of like, you're going along, you're having a life, you have your kids, and suddenly you feel, you start to feel sick. Yeah. Okay, I'm going along, and um, as far as I know, my husband's faithful, um, my kids are okay, and I register at UCLA, uh, which is about a half-hour drive from where I live, so I'm commuting and um, in the theater arts department when I start to feel ill. And uh, I'm driving a new Mustang over the hill to the San Fernando Valley, and I feel sicker and sicker, more or less I had, like I have the flu. And then I begin to, uh, my hands begin to shake. I remember so that this is a long time ago, Susie, so I have to kind of remember, reminisce as to what it was like to have these uh, symptoms. Um, and I did. I had many symptoms. Um, what were the of, symptoms? One of them was that uh, my period stopped. Um, my bowels and urine changed. Mm. Um, my, uh, as I said, my hands started to shake so that when I was taking notes at school, I was having trouble. I was having trouble even driving. My hands were shaking on the steering wheel. I would get home from UCLA and just sit in the garage for a while, too weak to go into the house. So mm. um, uh, I was obviously ill. And um, being married to a doctor who, by that time, had chosen his his specialty, which was psychiatry. Hmm. <laughs> uh, a warning signal there, but uh, <laughs> we'll go into that now. So uh, anyway, uh, he was not my physical doctor, although he knew a lot about medicine, having graduated recently, and I did have another um, general primary, I guess you didn't call him, we didn't call him that in those days, but I had my primary who lived, practiced near me, and um, I went and had a thorough examination. I went and had a couple, and they came out negative. Nobody knew what was wrong with me. And then I was going to UCLA. I remember going into the student health one time where, where interns, more or less medical students, took care of you, and I would give them all my symptoms, and they couldn't find anything wrong with me, or they couldn't put their fingers on it, until finally, um, and my, my psychiatrist husband um, 
more or less in implied that it was all in my head without saying that. I remember looking in his medical books, which we still had, and they were in a bookcase in the living room, and I remember coming up with all sorts of usual cancer, you know, leukemias. As I said, I was still terribly cancer phobic, mm -hmm. and so I was sure that I was going to die. And um, uh, long about that time, now this is interesting, and I don't know if it's going to interest anybody who doesn't live and know uh, the Los Angeles area, but there's a a great division between the San Fernando Valley <laughs> and Beverly Hills or the city. And it was even more uh, noticeable in those days. Mm -hmm, and uh, mm -hmm. uh, there's always been a kind of a competition. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, you live in the valley or you go to a, the valley hospitals, there was an implication it wasn't quite up to snuff. Uh, compared to Beverly Hills. So I had an uncle. One of the reasons we moved here is because I had an uncle on my mother's side who uh, lived in Beverly Hills and had had a couple of very bad heart attacks. And he had gone to a, a Beverly Hills cardiologist who more or less who did save his life. And we knew him and we liked him. And he was about the only doctor I did know in uh, over the hill, as we called it, in Beverly mm -hmm. Hills. And uh, mm -hmm. uh, against my husband's recommendation, I was so sick, and it went on for so many weeks, that I finally called and made an appointment with this doctor. And I remember this so distinctly. It's so many years ago. Susie, it's, it's more than a half a century. But I mm. I sat in his waiting room shaking, trembling, and I remember going into his, uh, what do they call it, the office, and, and not the examining room, the office, and he said, tell me what's wrong. Tell me why you're here. And I said, well, how much time do you have? <laughs> Because at that point, my whole body was failing me. Mm. And I started the litany. A, my bowels, my urine, my, my period. And he said, and I'm afraid I I'm, it might be leukemia. And he said, well, wait a minute. Stop right there. You don't have leukemia, you don't have cancer, you have hyperthyroid. <laughs> Just by looking at Just you? Like, well, I gave him the litany. Oh. I gave him the symptoms. And he, yeah, he looked at me and he said, oh, oh the, excuse me, I did leave out the biggest symptom, and that's weight loss. Uh. I had always fought my weight. Mm. Um, by this time, I had lost about 15, 20 pounds. Mm. I was down to a size almost down to a size five, mm. a size 12 or 10. So I forgot that. Mm. And he said, well, you're hyperthyroid. <laughs> so when I got home that night, and then he arranged for further tests and treatment, I won't bore you with that. But when I got home and said to my husband, well, you know, I seem to have hyperthyroid. And he said, no, you can't do Dr. So-and-so examine you and, and anyway, he called his buddy after I'd had the blood test that showed how I was off the charts. My wow. thyroid was so high that I could have really just killed over and died had I not been treated. And I remember when he called his friend who lived not far from us in his office was on Ventura Boulevard in the Valley. And I remember the, the doctor saying, but I'm sure I did that test. I forget what that test is called, a T-something. There's mm. one simple blood test that determines your thyroid. Wow. It did then, and it does now. It just had one. And this guy was so certain that he had done that exam 
and that it had come out right mm. that he got up in the middle of the night, got dressed, went to his office building, went on the elevator, opened the door, looked into my files and said, oh, my God, I forgot to order that test. What? Well, <sighs> top that for a medical story, huh? Wow. So anyway, that was what... Unfortunately, was not uncommon. That's what we were talking about earlier, mm -hmm. right? About mm -hmm. my, my calcifications mm -hmm. and how, you know, you have to be an advocate yeah. yep. for yep. yourself and have a partnership with your doctor yep. so that these things don't go slipping through and the cracks. Slipping through the cracks when you're married to a doctor. You know? Wow. What could be worse? So, yes, it, it could have been what you were, although it was bad enough. So, you know, there, and I certainly don't want to bore everybody, least of all myself, with the um, <laughs> years and years of trying to um, overcome. Conquer, you know, How many uh, years did you fight? Well, what happens after hyperthyroid, which I think is that's the one that's called Hashimoto's disease, or is that, is that hypothyroid? I always get them confused. Um, what happens then is um, often it develops into something known as Graves' disease. Uh. Now, some people are fortunate enough to get Graves' disease, and they are their hyper their thyroid is either removed or the other treatment is a radioactive iodine, which is what I elected to have because I didn't want to undergo surgery. The common way to have cured me would have been to remove my thyroid. And I avoided that. But what I didn't avoid, and this was a year or two later, was the terrible result of Graves' disease, which is, uh, for want of a better word, poppy eyes, mm. when your eyes protrude. Mm. And I needn't to explain that at this point in my life, as I said, I had begun uh, to pursue acting seriously. I had gotten an agent. I had gotten not one commercial, but two and three. Mm. I had two of the biggest commercial agencies in Los Angeles vying for me. Mm. Uh, I had auditions. It was, um, now, mind you, I had already gotten my degree from UCLA. So, mm. so it was a, what should have been a great time of my life. And when you have, uh, when you're disfigured, especially a woman, anybody, man mm. or woman, uh, protruding eyes is a real disfigurement. Mm. And uh, yes, there could be worse things. I didn't go blind. It didn't really affect my vision too badly, but it changed my life. It mm -hmm. changed my look. It took away the best feature of my that I ever had, which my eye were my eyes, my eyebrows, mm -hmm. and um, therein started a series of. Um, of, of medical procedures that I hoped would alleviate the problem. Well, they never really did. And I ended up having five major surgeries. Wow. Um, well, the first, they were, a couple of them were more or less cosmetic, nothing. There really was no cure for this. Um, some people are lucky enough to get it and have it just received by itself. Uh, one of those is Rita Moreno, by the way, who oh. just uh, is still acting. She's my age, uh, a little younger. And she also married a doctor, by the way, but she <laughs> did have Graves' disease. She was disfigured for a while, and then it went. they went back by themselves. So mine never really did, and it's, it was my big misfortune in life. Um, 
as I said, I don't want to, not asking for pity because I was able to get to the point where I physically felt okay. Mm. And I, my vision wasn't really disturbed that much, just a little. But again, I remember talking about doctors. This is going to be an anti-doctor hour. <laughs> but I remember going to... Um, we love doctors, just the ones that are good. Just the, yeah. <laughs> the eye doctor I had in, uh, in the San Fernando Valley was also a friend, quote, unquote, as was the primary. And... Um, I remember going into him because I'm going to an ophthalmologist now. Help me, help me. You know, well, of course, these ophthalmologists had no help for this. Mm. That's not what they do. And they certainly not then, which is, as I said, a half a century ago. It is a half a century ago. I'm 95. I got this when I was 40. So it's wow. So um, amazing. I remember. Um, being in his office and begging him and whining and complaining about it. And he had nothing positive to say. And then he said to me at the end, um, did you see that woman who just walked out? Who left in, in here? I said, well, I think I did. He said, um, uh, well, she's got this and she's married and her husband could care less. <laughs> <laughs> what was that supposed to mean? It was supposed to mean don't complain just because you have a little thing like your eyes popping out of your head. You know? <laughs> well, I have lots oh more God. anecdotes about that. Yeah. And I really have fought it now as we sit here. And I realize it has been a half a century that I have to look, have had to live with this. The, um, final and major operation that I had, I was married to number two. And bless his heart, he was very patient with me. He loved me with the eyes and all, and he didn't see why it still bothered me. Huh. But I did hear of a, a, a major surgery called a decompression, where they go in through the nose and up through the sinuses. Woo. And um, it's kind of yucky to hear about, but they do make a hole so that they can, there's enough room for them to decompress the eye. And that was a very, very serious and major surgery. And I did elect to have it. I was gung ho for anything. And it was, I was in UCLA hospital for a few days. And um, it was only partially successful. I am. Um, I haven't had any since then. I think I was already working at William Morris, or maybe right before I had that. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, especially when you um, you have thought you were going to do something as visible as being on stage or in front of a camera, and you have a disfiguring illness. I guess that is my biggest story of overcoming adversity. I've finally managed to the point where I I can actually walk in a room or a new cocktail party and not think about it anymore. Mm. But it didn't to. stop you from being an actor. Well, you continued, didn't you? Or what, did you have a period uh, of time where you wanted to hide from everyone? Yeah, and yeah I did. I didn't. I couldn't go for auditions. And... Um, yeah, well, I'm trying to think now. It is so long. Um, I, 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 I was in the theater company that we're in. Now I have pictures. Theater of 40 in Beverly theater Hills. Theater 40, I'm allowed to say that. Yes, yeah. yes of course. Yes, I was in Theater 40. And um, I, I, I have photos. Yes, I still had. They were worse than they are now. I think they're still bad, but they were worse. And I thought I, I auditioned for some roles that I knew that I was right for. I thought I was good, and I didn't get them. Hmm. And I think it was, I, I blame the eyes ah. a lot of times. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. So gradually, I, I learned to live with it. And, you know, my love of acting has kept me going. And uh, I don't know if you want me to bring up to date my... Yes, please <laughs> let everyone know they can watch it. Yeah, 
uh, yeah, something quite wonderful happened recently. Um, about 10 years ago, I uh, did a, a one-woman show at Theater 40 as a fundraiser. And uh, it, um, it is a script about a Holocaust survivor. And I do mean a survivor, a very feisty woman who was born in Poland and um, lived and ended up uh, surviving the Holocaust, losing a child, uh, losing a husband in the, uh, uh, the Warsaw Ghetto period. And it was she got eventually gets on the exodus, gets turned back from what was then Palestine, ends up getting remarried and settling in Atlantic City and later in Miami Beach. It's an absolutely wonderful story of a feisty survivor. And I felt as though it was just written for me. From the first time I picked up that script, I just knew that I could do it. Mm. And it was, um, it is about an hour and a half. And uh, I was able to bring it on stage at Theater 40 for a few performances as a fundraiser. Uh, script in hand for part of it. I really didn't need the script. And um, I was fortunate enough so that my boyfriend at the time, who was in the theater in show business, uh, insisted that he hire a, uh, a cameraman to record it. So yeah, we had this very young guy come for two of the performances and uh, he was in audience left for one of them and audience right for the other. And he made a recording of the entire play, two different evenings. And, uh, you know, it was pretty good, not great. Uh, the photography wasn't great, but I, I didn't do much with it. And I put it away in, in a box under the bed. <laughs> <laughs> so, but I always loved it. I just knew that I knew that I had done it well. I had a couple different directors that I used on it. Uh, one was a man, one was a woman. And... At the end, I felt it was self-directed. I, I knew her story so well. And uh, so about six weeks ago, I somehow was rummaging through these old tapes and I came up with the story of Rose. Her name is Rose and that's the name of the play and put it on to play, I said, oh my God, this is marvelous. <laughs> Did I do this? Because it's about 10 years ago and I've gotten a little older and memorizing a little harder for me now. Uh, but um, I was blown away. And so was my man that I live with, Sheldon, and we, um, we decided, I decided, Susie, that this is going to be my legacy. I do mm. not want this, even though it was not done on Broadway, I don't want this to be buried. And so I was fortunate enough to have a good friend who agreed that he would work on it digitally for me because at this point, <laughs> that's so beyond my capabilities. Mm. And uh, he did, and it took this dear, dear friend who's an actor. And Jonathan. Am I allowed to say his name? Yes, of course. <laughs> I will. Jonathan Medina, who is a techie and a excellent actor, wonderful actor, and who agrees said, we'll bring it over to my house. Give me a couple hours and I'll do it for you. In other words, I needed the first night and the second night sort of combined. I needed it edited. Well, Jonathan uh, said, give me, the, give, it, give me the tape and I'll give it back to you in a couple hours or a couple days. And we'll flash forward uh, two or three months. 
where Jonathan just became enamored with the piece and worked so hard on it. And what has come to fruition, I'm so, so proud of. And I'm so moved. In fact, I just watched the second act before I came tonight. Ah. And every time I watch it, I, I like it more. Uh, I like the technology. technology. And I, it's the first time I could really say that I'm pleased with my performance. Not too many actors can say that. You know, <laughs> you know when you watch yourself on tape, I don't yeah. know. You know, yeah. you see yourself and say, well, not, yeah. that's really the best I could have done. Yeah, and, I've gotten better. At watching and myself watching and yourself. yeah, having yeah, yeah, setting yeah. myself aside and saying, Oh, that's that's okay, so, or ah, better, yeah, yeah. Well, you should because you're absolutely gorgeous and you're wonderful. And I, I watch you, I can watch you, over <laughs> and, over again. and I can't say that about too many friends. But anyway, I want to take this opportunity to thank Jonathan and tell everybody that uh, Dorothy's Sinclair Rose can be seen on YouTube anytime and i invite everybody to watch it yes and they go to they all they have to do is type in youtube dorothy sinclair rose or rose dorothy sinclair it seems yeah. to come up definitely and, catch it it's just um, the, so engaging uh, and amazing yeah well as i said in uh, the earlier part of an interview um you know although i grew up and went through college not knowing what was happening to the Jews in Europe. Mm. Not knowing, and I wasn't, it wasn't because we were blind and wasn't because we didn't want to know. Politically, they didn't want us to know. Who's the they? The they are the Franklin Roosevelt. Who was ah, then. okay. Do you know the story of the Exodus, which was turned away with a whole boatload of people who were ready to disembark in what was then Palestine and were turned away by the British. So uh, we really didn't know. And uh, we're still to this day finding out mm. the horrors, mm. the horrors of that, that war. Anyway, I invite yeah. everybody, as I say, it's a marvelous story and it is a story of survival. Mm. Yeah. I learned a lot by watching it actually. Did you? Yeah. I'm not a real history buff. I mean, I know about history. I try to make myself current with, you know, things that are going on, mm -hmm. but I mean, I hope I live long enough to study everything that I need to study in terms of the history of. Well, you think you're going to remember 9-11? Of course. Yeah. We had in our Buddhist organization, we had a, comrade that died on the second plane and oh really mm -hmm. uh, and his what happened from that was that his children stood up and became people of service and of integrity and um grandness from from mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. they were really sure they knew their father was comforting people as that that plane was. I have no doubt. The second the plane that was going to hit the Pentagon. No, the that second was, plane and um, the the towers. The tower, second the towers. Tower. Oh, he was in the tower. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, yeah. So yes. well, I imagine there was a lot of time to comfort on both of those. Mm -hmm. Oh God, what a time! Yeah, I read today a story of one of the um, airline ticket counter guys who said he uh, for years felt so guilty because he was checking in these two guys and he felt something about them. They, they, they were, one was dancing around antsy and dancing and the other one was, they rushed, they were late and he could have legitimately said, I'm sorry, the plane's taking off. You, you know, you can't. But he, you know, as his job, he tried his best to get the customers on the plane. That they, I 
this is sounding familiar. Yeah, yeah I've heard this and, story. Yeah, yeah and he yeah. said there was at one point where uh, I think he, if I remember it right, he was able to either be with people or read about other people's experiences because he kind of shut himself off and it was really mm. hard for him. And when he started hearing other people's experiences, Similar. then he started letting, you know, allowing himself to forgive, forgive himself for not um, saving, mm. you know, people from those, those two guys. But, you know, I mean, I, uh, I think that, you know, one of the things in my Buddhist practice, when I first started practicing, I was 22 years old, and I went to a study seminar, and the man who was leading the study, he was saying, you know, uh, usually when people start practicing Buddhism, they want to, they're, they're, they're starting to, they want peace. They're looking for peace. I want a peaceful life, right? And he said, but peaceful life in Nichiren Buddhism is not what people think it is, which would be like a calm lake, mm -hmm. that you want to have this calm lake. It's actually a goal that's unachievable, he said. What you want to do is develop a life state that becomes the greatest surfer on the tumultuous waves of life. And I'll never forget that. It would just like... I. I saw that in my mind's eye and I understood, you know, that that's what I wanted. That's what I wanted to become a person who could, you know, and he said, what do surfers look for and long for the biggest waves they possibly uh -huh. yeah. can get. Right. And, and what, and to surmount it. Yes. Yes. And so that's what we're talking about here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I yes. Guess. Yeah. Um, so that's so interesting. Uh, brings up the fact that um, <laughs> I, I I never really longed for a peaceful life. Mm. That to me translated into a boring life. <laughs> and. Uh, I do remember when my um, husband, first husband, was, uh, left for this other woman who by that time I had had some contact with and knew about. Oh, yes, you didn't know that? No. Oh. Wow. Oh, yes. Well, it became, um, <laughs> well, was a surprise, or you knew? Oh, why? You know what? Can I give a plug? <laughs> now, I've written two memoirs, and some of these stories are in them. And the first is called "You Can Take the Girl Out of Chicago," and uh, that ends with my finally becoming engaged and getting ready to get married. And the second one I call The Promise of the Dairy Queen. And that is about the marriage that took place and then fell apart. And um, I think I relayed that story to you early. And mm. uh, when I, uh, when my husband said, now, wait a minute, I thought you were finished with all that. And tell me, if you're not, if you're not finished with that, tell me now, before it's too late, we're not gonna go on. And um, I, I think I told you, I just mm. put my, crossed my fingers and said, oh, yes, yes, I'm through with all that. Well, uh, it turned out, and that is a true story, and he kept saying he wanted a peaceful life. He mm. had already been through the World War II. Mm. He had already been through a quick marriage, no kids, but he he had had enough tumult. Now he was settling down with his nice Jewish housewife, would be the mother of his kids. <laughs> and he kept telling me and telling me and telling me that that was what he wanted. Well, I had other ideas. And so, as we know, I began to go back to school and began to study acting and began to be away nights doing plays. And meanwhile, he started an affair mm. with one of his patients 
who was anything but a peaceful lady. But she uh, was a painter. She convinced him, or he convinced himself, that life with me was tumultuous, but with her, it would be peaceful. <laughs> I can only tell you, he, he got more than he bargained for because she was a real, real sicko. Ah. And he did marry her, and he had a miserable life with her. Wow. And uh, I, at that point, when he left, I remember begging him not to because my mother had just died and that meant I had inherited a little money. And we never had a lot of money because he was, as I said earlier, he was had actually been a communist in his earlier days. And he, he, he was um, not at all a money grabber. You know, he believed in equality for all. And so I remember saying to him, you know, I'm coming into a little money now and we could travel and we could have a more, you know, a more interesting life. He wouldn't have to work and worry. And, and I tried to convince him to stay with me. And he said, no, he wanted a peaceful life with her. Wow. Interesting. Yeah. 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 So well, for yeah, what do they say? For, uh, be careful what you wish yeah, for. Be careful what you wish for. <laughs> yes, yes, we won't go into that. <laughs> so anyway, Susie. Yes, ma'am. What else can I tell you? Uh, you probably that have I've survived. Yes. And I've survived a lot longer than I expected. Okay. Possibly longer than I deserve. Um, I I have heard that long life is a curse. Really? I, oh yes, that's by whom? Oh, that's common knowledge. Um, yes. Common knowledge from what long, source? Well, it isn't the amount of life you live it isn't the length of life you should know that is it? it's what you do with it yeah and unfortunately or fortunately now i shouldn't go into this but oh please um, do well i have also heard it said um no i don't think i'll touch this i don't think i'll touch this no, we won't go there. Everybody should live as long and as healthfully as they can. Yes. Um, well, in my Buddhist practice, Nichiren teaches that one day of life is worth more than all the treasures in the universe. And so in Buddhism, well, there's two things. We never started any wars because if I shoot you, I'm shooting me. Because we're connected, we're, inter we're interconnected, all of us, you know, we're all equal. And the other thing is um, that taking your life is one of the worst causes that you can make in terms of... Yes, of course, in Judaism ending. too, you know, you know that a suicide in Judaism is not allowed to be buried in a Jewish cemetery. Is that right? Oh, yes. Huh. That's strict very strict law yeah mm -hmm. yeah yeah I, I was uh when the whole thing happened with the abortion uh thing in texas mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. people were sending out um george carlin clips and he's talking about the sanctity of life and you know how, mm -hmm. how that's just bullshit everybody's saying the sanctity of life the sanctity of life but you don't act like it you know, you're all hypocrites, you know, <laughs> it's like you want, you know, you want to save a yeah. fetus, but you yeah. don't want to take care of yep. the child care and, nope. uh, you know, the medical for the child that's actually born. And he's going on and on. It's funny, but it's very poignant what he says. And so, you know, it is true that life is 
a miracle and a mystical gift. It's, it's, it's very difficult for us who are not pro-lifers, what's the opposite, you know? Um, well, what I think is we are all pro-lifers. You do. None of us are not against life. We are just, you know, those of us who uh, believe in free choice is that everybody has their choice to make. And that's the hardest part of it. The most, uh, and the one that causes the most fights, right? Because it's, then you can get into the mask wearing and the, you know, yeah, there's people sure. in my environment that don't want to get the vaccination. And it's hard for me not to judge them and say, what are you doing? <laughs> Why are you, you know, protecting yourself and protecting other people? So yeah. I think, you know, when you come down to it, if you really revere and honor yourself and other people and their lives, to me, that's the happiest way to live. It's, it's, it's a insurmountable question because so often, you know, we, we hear of little fetuses that turned out to be Mozarts. Yeah. Were you know this close to being yeah. removed, and it's it's, it's a tough I myself time. could never have an abortion. I could not, but I don't put that on other people, right? I'm not. Uh, I'm not going to hold somebody else in disdain because they decided, you know, for their own sake and for their baby's well, sake. You say you could never have an abortion, but uh, yet you didn't put yourself. In a position in that yeah. where you really could have benefited by, as far as I know, I don't know your whole history, but. No, you know, I yeah. did have, uh, similar to you, I had my uh, first love of my life that are Romeo and Juliet, 16 years old, looking in each other's eyes mm -hmm. uh, on the beach for an hour and a half and not knowing what time it is, mm -hmm. uh, romance. Uh, up until I was 22. Oh, from um, 16 to 22? 16 really? to 22. Really? Uh-huh. And we thought we were going to get married, and it was, you know, absolutely going to happen. And uh, in college, he kind of lost his mind a little bit. He mm. started seeing aliens and sitting on the Ooh. Galactic Council. Ooh. and Very, very brilliant guy. And as... As I always say, you know, people who are brilliant are on the edge of insanity if yes. they start screwing around with drugs and whatnot, and that's what he yes. did. Um, but I, I thought I was pregnant. I was 17, I think. And I was just starting to model in San Francisco and first start to pursue my acting career. And... Uh, when I finally couldn't, I just was not going to tell my parents. And then I just ended up weeping around the house. And my mother was like, what is wrong? And I was like, I haven't gotten my period. And I think I'm pregnant. So she tells my father, who's planning to take me to Mexico to take some pill that is mm -hmm. supposed to give you an abortion. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and then turned against my poor boyfriend and you know, made yeah. me not speak to him and I was punished and he was punished. And, you know, we survived that until, you know, until. Uh, so what happened? Don't keep us on. Oh, so I, I had a job. So were you pregnant? I had a job at the new bank of America building in San Francisco. That was 45 stories high, I think. And I was a tour oh. guide <laughs> myself and Joanna Cassidy. I think Joanna Cassidy and Suzanne, summers i think Ooh. we were all we were all started out you know is uh if i'm not cor incorrect but we were all sort of starting modeling at that time and they were a little ahead of me but i was you know taking up the rear and the first day i was just in absolute agony up until the day i had to report for work there and when you would take people in you know it was the what was the name of the uh the family, the Gian, Giovanni's or the Giannini's were the ones who owned the Bank of America. 
And uh, you, the first thing you do is you go up to the top floor very, very quickly. <laughs> I don't want to think about what. <laughs> yeah. And while we're racing up to the top floor, I feel my right. period coming. I love it. And I, I said, I, you know, excuse me. After I did the tour, I went into the bathroom and there I had, you know, my period. And I well, was just like. And well, I, you might have been pregnant and not. Maybe. I don't know. Maybe. Well, that's, that brings me to your thing about the violinist. Did you get pregnant with the violinist? Oh, yes. And then what happened? Well, followed, what followed, as I said, he called. One day he was, I think, in Atlantic City doing a concert, and I told him. I've never told this story, so this is a forest. And there was a silence at the other end of the phone of, I don't know, count the seconds. And then I heard him say, don't ever call me again. And then there was a click. And there followed an abortion there was an abortionist in Chicago who I unfortunately knew already and had friends who had used him. And he was a uh, respected MD, older man. His name was Dr. Foster. I can say it. Wow. He's been dead a long time. And he was a well-reputed uh, GP or a OBGYN, but anyway, he was doing a lot of abortions up in a high rise on Lake Michigan. They were done with a nurse in attendance and under anesthesia. And now, in those days, everybody and all you Texans who are listening in, abortions were done without anesthesia. Woo! Oh, yes. It's like a DNC. What year was this? This was. Um, uh, well, I'm talking about the 40s. When I went to Madison, which I started in 42, girls were already having abortions. Girls in my social set, don't forget I was going around with very fast girls. They were politically aware, and they were travelers, and they weren't about to have babies at 16 or 18. And um, so, as I said, it was... Uh, it was common knowledge to me, and there was always a circle of people who knew where you could get one if you needed one. But it was a hell of a time, and illegal abortions are just hell. Mm -hmm. And don't forget, they weren't all done by little flighty girls who were just screwing around. They're you know they're needed, they're necessary. Our birth control is not adequate especially for ill-educated women. So um, at that point, you were asking me about the violinist. That's what happened. I, uh, mm -hmm. I was hoping when I told him that, that I knew enough to know he wasn't going to say, well, let's get married. That's great. I, I, I had no, but I guess I was hoping he'd offer some financial help. Because they were expensive. They were always expensive. And they will always be expensive uh -huh. in one way or another. I mean, women now in Texas, are, if, we're going to, if they're going to need one uh, for whatever reason, they're going to have to travel to another state. Yeah. And that's expensive and difficult. So. How did that affect you emotionally or did it haunt you at all or was it? Yeah, yeah, it um, exacerbated my feelings, I guess, that I wasn't really worthy uh, of having him. Um, mm. um, yeah, he went on to marry a, uh, to get married shortly after my relationship with him. He married a uh, very well-known ballerina. That didn't last long. And then he went on to uh, 
I don't want to name names here, but he, he did marry someone and had three children. Why don't you want and to name names if they're not with us? No. And well, they're, they are. Oh. They're, they're, I mean, oh. He's not. Oh. He died a little prematurely. But uh. No, and she, I think, is dead. Um, but, um, you know, I lost my train of thought here. He went on to I, marry the ballerina and oh i know i i know uh yes that didn't last but the uh second one did i think she was israeli and i i remember thinking when he had his first kid mm. i remember thinking how vindicated i was just so this is a terrible thing to say just in case he ever suspected that he was unable to procreate. I now I always had that suspicion. Gee, maybe he didn't believe me. Ah. <laughs> so now this is several years later. I thought, oh, now he knows he is capable of fathering a child. I remember <laughs> thinking that. Wow. So it, um, I guess, it stayed with me for a while. And of course, you know, Susie the. Um, you want to know how this affected me. The guilt hmm. that I carry with me to this day of, I know that I made my parents unhappy, both of them. Hmm. And they didn't deserve that. They were very good parents, the best of their ability. And they were good providers. And it wasn't my mother's fault that she, she was a, a product of her generation, same as I sort of was a mine. I, I don't think I, I don't want to use that because I'm not really a product of my generation because I always said I was ahead of my time. Yes. That's what everybody else says anyway. Yeah, yeah. And I guess I guess I really was because things that are considered radical today or I, I say, well, so what? I did that. I did that when I was 18, you know. <laughs> That's kind of one of the things I really loved about you when I first met you. You freely said the F word and you were oh. like uh, great at gossiping and just <laughs> irascible. What do you, you know, we have about 10 minutes left. I don't know if you can answer this question, but what do you think? Is there a secret to living a long life? Why do you? You feel it just happens to you. It's your genes. It's well, your ca it, good karma. Your yeah, certainly not my genes because I've lived a lot longer than anyone in my family. Uh, I think a lot of it's luck. And when <laughs> I've been using this for some time now, and I think I've stopped recently, but but for maybe the last five ten years when. People have looked at me and, and said, uh, you know, straight, what, what's your secret? And my answer, short answer is chocolate and vodka. <laughs> <laughs> Those are the two things I love the most in my life. <laughs> now, unfortunately, the latter, vodka, at this point in my life, Unfortunately, it doesn't do it for me anymore. <laughs> you know, my balance is terrible. I can't really walk without a walker. So to imbibe in vodka now and feel that buzz and feel dizzy, that's not in the cards for me anymore. It's not that much fun. I still do like a vodka tonic. And I even would love to have a vodka martini. But... At 95, you don't dare do that, but you can keep eating chocolate. <laughs> well, they say, especially dark chocolates, very, very you know, good. It's gotten, you. yes, well, the pendulum keeps swinging all the time. And, you know, like, is coffee good? Is chocolate good? Oh, and I know, yeah. Right now, it's okay on both. Yeah, coffee's good and chocolate's yeah. good, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, Until they decide the something answer. else. Um, I don't really know, as I say, it's not my DNA. My um, aunt and I were so close, so I'd like to, to think we had the same DNA. We we thought alike. We spoke alike. We looked alike. Who? My aunt, who died at 49, yeah. got breast uh, cancer, died 49. Mm, so, yeah. Um, Do you feel I, like you maybe lived 
vicariously for her to carry on at all? Well, or? it's interesting that the two closest, the two people who are closest to me in the world now, except for my own kids, are her two children, my cousin, ah. she had a boy and a girl, and we were pretty close growing up. And uh, the boy's bad. I guess he's a man by now. <laughs> he's 10 years younger. And so he's 85. Wow. And my cousin Janet just turned 80. I can't believe it. My baby cousin. And we're so close. Wow. That's amazing. I, I think what, from knowing you, to me, the reason you keep, I mean, it's your youthful spirit you have. You're always so interested in everything. You're enthusiastic about life, about other people. You enjoy yeah. being around people. You yeah. enjoy, you, you champion people's victories. And, and also, I just think uh, you're always talking about the future. You're always looking to the future. You, you don't have... No. You don't have this thing of like, oh, I mean, no. you'll, you'll probably joke sometimes. Like you say, well, I, I can't have vodka right now because no. I'm 95. No, I don't look back. No, yeah. I, I'm, no you're right. And um, I think I have a um, normal curiosity about meeting new people, about what's in other people. I, I notice some people, a lot of them, not you, of course, a lot of people just don't know how to carry on a conversation. <laughs> I've had this happen so much in life. And you know what it is to carry on a conversation. You talk and I listen. It's very simple. And then I talk and you listen. Isn't that right? Correct. So when I'm looking at you while you're talking, you get the feeling I'm interested in you, and I am. And I'm t taking something in. You're giving it. And it's just a shame that more, that just doesn't seem to come naturally hmm. to so many people. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yes, I do. I do. So I think it's, you know, we were just talking, um, when was it? Yesterday. Uh, about someone who died from cancer, who that one one person who survived, the other one who didn't, and we were kind of discussing my friend Jenny and I about what's the difference between the two. And one of them told everybody and asked for about prayers. Cancer? Uh -huh. Yeah, okay. and I'm going through this, and yeah. watch me, and I'm yeah. going to overcome it. And the other one hid. Yeah and didn't tell anyone and felt, you know, and, and of course inside, she probably thought, oh, I don't want to bother everybody. Let me just, you know, suffer in silence. Mm -hmm. But the difference is, I mean, I felt that with my Crohn's disease, when I turned the corner of, you know, when people say, oh, how, how are you doing? Instead of lying and going, oh, I'm just fine. How are you? I started saying, you know, I just bled from my ass before I came in here. How are you doing? You know? <laughs> and so as as I might have told you, I have this motto, you know, nobody can talk shit about me because everybody knows my shit. Yeah. You know, so, oh, did you hear Susan? Oh, yeah, yeah, she told me last week. So it's very freeing and it's very um, calming. Being, being open, you mean? Being open. And, you know, because um, I think yeah. because my last time I almost died from Crohn's disease, internal bleeding, was, you know, as it was closing, and I've told this story when I was uh, on the episode with Natalie, the first episode, was, you know, this voice inside of me and many voices, voices of people that love me, voices of people that I love saying, you can't die. Your life is for the sake of serving others. You can't die. Your life is for the sake of serving others. And it opened and the bleeding stopped. That was the last time I ever almost died from internal bleeding and so a life and it's not you know mother teresa or you know it's not like oh let me you know i'm not de denigrating charity but it's not like being a charity or it's just 
having this sense that everything I do reflects on the world. And it really became something like my, this deep purpose. I, I feel that I started to understand that I had that everything I'm going through affects people and affects my family, society, the world. And we've seen that, you know, in the negative, in the positive way, that one person can affect the entire world. And I think, Dorothy, I'm, your connection that I have with you, I, I cherish it. I, I'm so happy to have it. And I hope we have many, many. Not anymore than I. But, you know, I, I do want to say I, how attractive and a Appealing, I find Susie, and did from the first time I laid eyes on her, really, or the first time I heard her. And um, so I don't know how much time we have, and I, and I don't want to expound on this too uh, long, but um, as you know, Susie, I had no idea that you were Buddhist. Uh, I I love and adore this woman, and there are two separate parts of her. To me, her acting ability is second to none. Her personality, her warmth, her smarts, and that's enough for me. I mean, that would have, that in itself would have been enough I would, to be attracted to her and love her. I so I heard her audition, and. For a, a play, I was not auditioning for myself, and it was a, a role. And to my mind, I heard several people audition for the same part, and I remember having the reaction that, well, well what's the problem here? It's not even a toss-up. I mean, how can this director even <laughs> consider anyone else? And it had nothing to do with her being the Buddhist or smart or inspiring. And then there's a part of her that I learned about later when she said, you know, I'm Buddhist. And I am. What's a Buddhist? You know? <laughs> <laughs> and that's okay. You want to be a Buddhist? Okay. But um, I, I have learned. She's given me the literature to read. And she's <laughs> tried to proselytize, but not too, not too much. And I'm a better person for it. No, I do. I do read literature and I do understand the philosophy behind it you and do. it uh, never has one thing that I've read about it or felt in any way non-validate my feeling of being a Jew. Right. Mm -hmm. Yes. So because we're human beings. That's first and foremost. We're not, and, you know, all those other different identities. God, can you imagine growing up being a Taliban? Uh, I mean, from the time they're born, they're bred to kill? Mm, yeah. 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 All right, honey, I think we've... Oh, we've, well, we've, we've about done it. Huh? We've done it. We've done it. Thank you so much. Thank you. And I hope this... People will find this interesting and fun. Oh, absolutely. They okay. will. Thank yeah. you so much, everybody. Um, if you um, like what you hear, please write to me if you have your own story of adversity on my website, www.susandamonte.com. Write me a, uh, in my contacts. And like, like what you see. Like it. Subscribe to it. And uh, hopefully we'll keep it going and meet just the most amazing people and hear their life stories and how they've overcome adversity. Thank you for joining. Bye-bye. This has been Tell Me Everything with Susan Devante. This podcast was produced by me, Susan, of Out Our Way Productions with support from consulting producer Maggie Politi and developed with Ashley Kate Adams of BYOP, Be Your Own Producer. Editing by Graham Bryant. Don't forget to like, subscribe, 
and leave a review if you enjoyed our time together today. If you have any stories of overcoming adversity, please use the contact page on my website, susandemonte.com. We would love to hear from you. See you next time.